Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at Banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned, independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at Banyan.com. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Branches of Wisdom. I'm your host, Ross McKeechee, and very excited today. We have a very special honored guest, Satish Kumar. Before we get to his formal introduction, Banyan Books acknowledges that although we have people joining us from all over the world for these live streaming events, the physical location of Banyan Books and Sound is on the traditional and unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil nations. Most of Banyan's events and podcasts are free. We welcome your donations to keep these programs accessible for all. Just click on the PayPal link in the show description below. Uh, also letting our live audience know that uh, Satish will be taking uh, some of your questions in the last 15 minutes. So if you're here in the live audience, please go ahead and type those into the uh, comments field on YouTube and we'll get to as many of those as we can. Satish Kumar. Peace Pilgrim, lifelong activist and former monk, has been inspiring global change for over 50 years. Age nine, Satish renounced the world and became a wandering Jain monk. Then in his 20s, he undertook a pilgrimage for peace, walking for two years without money from India to America for the cause of nuclear disarmament. Now in his 80s, Satish has devoted his life to campaigning for ecological regeneration social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. In 2022, he received the Goy Peace Award. A world-renowned author and international speaker, Satish founded the Resurgence Trust, an educational charity that seeks to inform and inspire a just future for all. He was the editor of the charity's change-making magazine, Resurgence and Ecologist, for over 40 years, making him the UK's longest-serving editor of the same magazine. And he continues to serve this publication as editor emeritus and by writing for each and every trailblazing issue of this much-loved and acclaimed magazine, which has been described by The Guardian as the spiritual and ecological flagship of the environmental movement. Satish has been the guiding spirit behind several other internationally respected ecological and educational ventures, including co-founding Schumacher College, which he continues to serve as a visiting fellow. Satish continues to teach, run workshops, and write about reverential ecology, holistic education, and voluntary simplicity. 
He's a much sought after international speaker and author, appearing regularly on podcasts and on radio and television shows. He's the author of countless articles and books. His autobiography, No Destination, sold over 50,000 copies, inspiring change around the world. Today, Satish Kumar is with Banyan Books in conversation about his new book, Radical Love, From Separation to Connection with the Earth, Each Other, and Ourselves. To see peace in our lifetime, we have to practice love. This is the radical message of this inspirational book, which helps us find ways to love ourselves, one another, and all beings on planet Earth, even those we may find unlovable. Radical Love distills the author's lifetime of piecework into simple lessons on transforming our ecological crisis, conflict, and scarcity into a new era in which we experience harmony with nature, safety, abundance, and love. If you'd like to learn more about today's honored guest, his life and work, you can visit www.resurgence.org. Banyan Books community, it's my great honor to introduce Satish Kumar. Hello, Satish. Thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure to be your guest. Thank you for having me. I understand that you and uh, Schumacher College, which you founded, received uh, an award this year, the RSA Bicentenary Medal for Outstanding Contribution to Ecological Education. So I just wanted to congratulate you on that. And I'm, I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about what's happening at, at Schumacher College these days. Thank you. Um, Schumacher College was founded uh, in 1991. The reason we found Schumacher College is because we think that the modern education around the world is part of the problem rather than part of solution. Because we are suffering from the demise of biodiversity, climate change, our oceans are polluted with plastic, our rivers are polluted with our sewage, our rainforests are being cut down, and all these problems are created by big, big companies, and those big companies are led by highly educated people. So what kind of education are we giving? It's a very nature, anti-nature education, if you want to say in a, in a kind of radical way. So I established Schumacher College to make education nature-centered, earth-centered, life-centered, where educated people do not pollute, do not waste, and do not de uh, de kind of demise the biodiversity and rainforest and, and honor our oceans and rivers and soil and land and nature altogether. So that was the purpose of Schumacher College. Wonderful. That's fantastic. Satish, I, I have to say this book, it's, it's a short and very concise book, which is incredibly beautiful and poetic as well. And it's, it's a, brings together your life's work in a very concise way. Um, radical love. Why that title? What? How do you define love? Why is love so important? Yes. I mean, first of all, I want to say that I put the word radical with love because I feel that there are many 
wonderful activists who are trying to change the world, who are trying to bring social justice, who are trying to bring ecological sustainability, regenerative agriculture. They are activists, radical, but they lack loving heart. They are angry, they are anxious, they are fearful. So I would like the radical activists to cultivate love in their heart. And I want them to act out of love and not out of fear. Act out of love and not out of anxiety and not out of anger. So this is why I put radical love. But also I wanted to have this message to those who have a loving heart. They love humanity. They love themselves. They love um, the earth. But they are not very activist. They just say, oh, I will practice yoga. I will practice meditation. I will practice good life, live a good life. And that's it. I want them to be a bit more radical. So bringing radicalism and love together, those who are radicals should become loving people. And those who are loving people should also become radical. So this is a combination I wanted to bring. But also I wanted to make a kind of combination of moderate love and radical love. Moderate love is love when you love someone who you like, who you appreciate, with whom you agree, and you expect them to love you back. So it's a kind of loving with expectation. But radical love goes a step further. Radical love is to love without any expectations. You drop all your expectations. You don't expect to be loved back. And you love even those with whom you don't agree. Even if you don't like them. Even if they are maybe not lovable. And yet you love them. This is a very radical step to love people without any expectation and without any discrimination and without any judgment without any idea that you are good people and therefore I will love you. If you're not so good, I won't love you. This is the kind of difference I wanted to bring together. Loving, moderate love and loving people who you like, but also radical love, loving people you don't like. So without expectation, without fear, without anxiety, you love without discrimination to everyone. That's a radical love. You, you were a Jain monk as a young man. Uh, and I, in your work, I, I hear a lot of the, the philosophy and this speaking of love and loving everyone. How, how does, first of all, I, I want to say we don't often uh, have people on the program that are from the Jain tradition. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the roots of the Jain tradition and then also how it has influenced your work uh, Ye to this day. Yes, yes. Um, in India, there are four great indigenous religions. Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, and Sikhism. These are the four great religions of Indian uh, kind of, uh, you can say, indigenous religions. And then other religions came from outside India, like Christianity, great religion, and many, many millions of Indians are Christians. Then Islam. Many, many millions of, of, of people follow Islam and Muslims. And then, of course, Jews. Uh, there are many, many great numbers of Jews. So there are many other religions who have come from outside India. 
So Jain is one of the four. And one of the most fundamental principles of Jainism is do no harm. What we call ahimsa, or you can say non-violence. So the supreme religion of Jainism is non-violence or doing no harm. But the, the positive word for doing no harm <coughs> is to love. And this is why, for me, as a kind of foundation of Jainism or Jain religion is love. So for me, I can say my religion is not necessarily, I would call Jain, although I was brought up as a Jain and a Jain tradition, but Jain religion is a religion of love. And therefore my religion is love. So one can be a Hindu, one can be a Muslim, one can be a Christian, one can be a Buddhist. They are all fine. There's no problem in following any particular religion and I can follow Jainism. But ultimately, our religion is love. And that is the fundamental principle of Jainism. And I became a Jain monk at age nine because I thought that by becoming, renouncing the world, I will liberate myself and I'll find a kind of nirvana or the kind of ultimate liberation and freedom. But then I realized that how many people can become monks? Only a few select. But spirituality and love and nonviolence, these Jain principles should be available to all human beings, all human beings, uh, not some select few. So there are 8 billion people today in the world. Not all of them can become uh, monks and live in monastic order, but they all need to practice love and compassion and, and kindness and generosity and spirituality. So I decided that I will leave the monkhood and come in the world and practice love in the world rather than practice love outside the world in a monastic order, thinking the world is a dirty place, a, a trap, a sinful place, and have to escape from the world. So this is why I decided to leave the monastic order and practice love in the world. But Jainism is a wonderful religion. And one particular uh, kind of aspect of Jainism which I very much admire and practice is there is no one single truth. Particularly in language, we cannot express a truth which is a complete one truth. As many people as there are, there are truths. So the kind like you believe in biodiversity, cultural diversity, religious diversity, linguistic diversity, Jains believe in truth diversity and everyone have their own point of view and we must suspect their point of view as long as you do no harm that is a common principle of jainism that do no harm do no violence do whatever you do believe whatever you believe think whatever you think you are completely free as long as you do no harm so love is fundamental <coughs> love is kind of, you can say, unconditional, and love is uh, unexceptional, love is for everybody, but the truth, you can have a diversity, you can have your own truth, and practice your own truth, and speak your own truth, and think your own truth. I think that is a very wonderful example of Jain generosity, 
and gain inclusivity. At the moment in the world, we have so many conflicts because people think that my truth is better than your truth. I have the truth. You don't have the truth. Follow my truth. I'm the only person or my religion is the only good religion and, and my country is the only good country. My philosophy, my economic system, my political system is better than your system. This kind of, um, kind of um, uh, exclusivity and a one truth for everybody, that is not Jain. So I would say in Jain tradition and Jain religion, these are the two most fundamental principles. One is love, do no harm, that's for everybody. And the second truth, millions and billions of truth. Everybody had their own truth and let them feel and speak the truth as long as in the name of truth, uh, they don't do any harm, any violence. That's, these are the two fundamental principles of Jainism. Very wonderful. Very wonderful. Thank you. You know, you're speaking about diversity here, diversity of truth. And diversity is one of the really key themes in this book, Radical Love. Um, and I'll just quote you. You write that diversity is key to a healthy humanity and thus key to a new paradigm and a new civilization. And you talk about unity and diversity. Can you speak a little bit to that integration of unity and diversity? Yes, of course. You know, uh, diversity is evolutionary principle. When the, the beginning of time, when the uh, Big Bang happened, there was no diversity. So the only gas with energy and matter. And then over billions and billions of years of evolution, we have, or evolution has created this wonderful diversity. So that after the gas, many, many things came, water, forest, um, mountains, um, uh, insects, uh, uh, animals, humans, all that evolution. So evolution favors diversity. And diversity is not division. Diversity is not conflict. For example, we have many diversity, diverse religions. It's wonderful. Um, if you are uh, born in America, you are more likely to be a Christian or whatever. Uh, if you are born in India, you are more likely to be a Hindu or, or, or a Jain. If you are born in China or Japan, you are more likely to be a Buddhist. So that doesn't mean that one religion is superior or better than other religion. So diversity should be celebrated. L language. Chinese, Russian, English, Sanskrit, Hindi, Swahili, whatever language you speak, as long as you speak loving words and loving heart, doesn't matter what language you speak, that all languages are beautiful. So we should celebrate the linguistic diversity. So, but in the moment, in our modern world, we have turned this diversity into divisions and conflicts. And we, in the name of race, we say, one race is superior to other race. One um, gender is superior to another gender. Uh, one color is superior to other color. So we have created this diversity and turned it into divisions and conflicts. And then on the other hand, unity of life, because we are all made of earth, air, fire, water. We are all made of consciousness. We are all made of spirit and, and, and imagination and creativity. So there's a unity of life, and that unity also should be celebrated. But unfortunately, like diversity 
has been turned into divisions. Unity is now being forgotten and we are creating uniformity. Uniformity is not unity. Uniformity is same like in the United States now you have Coca-Cola everywhere. Everybody should drink Coca-Cola. Everybody should eat McDonald's. Everybody should, eat, everybody should wear blue jeans. Everybody should have a market economy. Everybody should have a kind of election system. Everybody should have a same, same, same. This uniformity is the cause of conflicts and a cause of wars and a cause of hatred and a cause of anger. So we should not follow the idea of uniformity, but we should embrace unity. And unity manifesting in diversity. We are all human beings, but no two human beings look alike. We all have two eyes, but no two eyes are the same. We all speak, uh, all of those who speak English, we speak English, but every one of us have our own accent and our own way of speaking. So this diversity and unity dancing together. When you can have unity and diversity dancing together, you have a beautiful world. But when you turn diversity into divisions and conflicts and wars and superiority complex, one nation above other nation, one religion above other religion, one system above other system, that kind of discrimination and judgmental uh, approach uh, is dangerous. So I have in my book celebrated diversity, embraced unity, and I want unity and diversity to dance together and do not go on the way of, um, of divisions and uniformity. That's the essence of my unity and diversity idea in the book. Yes, and, and not just diversity in human beings, but you speak to biodiversity. And I'm just gonna quote you again. You write that we need legislation that protects nature and biodiversity, that acknowledges their intrinsic value. So I wanna just ask, because we're in this world now, this industrial paradigm where we value econ economy over ecology. So have you been seeing any progress being made towards this uh, when it comes to governments around the world? I mean, not much progress, unfortunately, but there's a progress among the humanity, among the people. More and more people are waking up. More and more people are realizing that first of all, nature and humans are not separate. Nature is not just out there, like the mountains and the rivers and the forests and the animals are nature. And humans are not nature. Humans are separate from nature. This idea is now being challenged. And large numbers of people around the world are realizing that humans are as much nature as forests, mountains, rivers, and oceans. So this is a very good thing that people are realizing it. And the moment we say we are nature, and therefore what we do to nature, if we destroy biodiversity, if we destroy rainforest, if we uh, pollute oceans, if we pollute air, we create climate change, we create global warming, uh, we put poisonous chemicals in the soil and destroy our, uh, our uh, soil and land, and or, 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 or poison our soil and land, then that is what we do to nature, we do to ourselves. That will impact on our health, on our consciousness, on our being. So this unity between nature and humans. So that's the one uh, new realization. But unfortunately, our governments are still wedded to this ideal of economic growth at all costs. Everything else can be sacrificed at the altar of economic growth. 
economic growth had become the end and nature had become a resource for the economy. This is what I'm challenging in my book. I'm saying that nature is not a resource for the economy. Nature is life itself. Nature is a source of life, not a resource for the economy. And nature is not only a means to an end, the end of economic growth. Nature is the end. The integrity of nature is the prime and a fundamental um, and, and a kind of paramount uh, importance. Uh, nature and integrity of nature. In the same way, I would say, Ross, that humans have been turned into um, a, a resource for the economy. In many businesses and government departments, you see there is a, a department called HR. HR stands for human resources. So humans have become a resource for the economic growth, for making profit, for making money. This is disastrous thinking. It's a kind of dreadful thinking. How can we turn humans into a resource for economy? Economy becomes a master and humans become the slave and the servants. So I'm challenging that in my book. And I'm saying that economy should be the means and the resource for the integrity of nature and dignity and, and, and integrity of humans. So for me, humans and nature are one and humans and nature are uh, precious and they should be at the top and the economy, money, profit, production, consumption, industry, business, all these things which are practical and pragmatic and necessary, but they should be the means to an end. At the moment, we have this confusion of what are the means and what are the ends. We think the, the, the economic growth is the end and humans and nature are the means. I am putting in my book that no, no, economy is the means and human dignity and human well-being and planetary well-being and, and integrity of nature, they are the end. So this is the kind of means and end composition I'm making in my book. Right. And you make the case for what you call a love economy, which you say provides limitless opportunities for people to grow and thrive in meaningful activities rather than the pursuit of mindless jobs and throwaway wares. What is it? Can you tell us more about love economy? Yeah. Love economy is a very important word because, you know, in our homes, we practice love economy. Mm. Mothers and fathers and the teachers and, and, and the children, we all give each other reciprocity and, and a mutuality and helping each other. That is a large part of economy. And that is a real economy. So love economy is the real economy. And the money economy is a kind of a facilitates. I'm not against money. As long as money is used as a means to an end, as long as money is used as a kind of means of exchange, that's okay. When money becomes a master, when money becomes the symbol of prestige and power and a kind of um, status and a kind of wealth, money is not wealth. The real wealth is nature. Real wealth is land. Real wealth is agriculture. Real wealth is human intelligence and human creativity and imagination and human skills. The skills of two hands that we can build a house, we can make furniture, we can make uh, a beautiful pottery, uh, we, can, uh, we can make things and we can write poetry and we can paint pictures and we can dance. These human skills are real wealth. Money is only a measure of wealth and not wealth itself. And that is the point I'm making uh, in my book. 
One of the things I really loved was something you called the, a new trinity. You wrote that, I'll just quote you again, the trinity of market, money, and materialism has ruled the modern mind for far too long. And you say that we need to replace this old trinity with a new one, the trinity of soil, soul, and society. And you adapted this from the three timeless principles of the Bhagavad Gita, yagna, tapas, and dana. I'm wondering, can you fill us in on this, this new trinity you're speaking of? Yes, yes. You know, all great movements of the past have communicated the essence of their um, vision in three words. So the French Revolution, they had egalité, liberté, fraternité. That was their trinity. It was a good trinity, but in my view, there was a very political trinity, a human trinity, a human egalité, human fraternity, human liberty. I mean, our, our Christian tradition had a trinity, holy trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is also a very beautiful trinity. But sometimes I ask my um, beloved Christian friends that, of course, Father is good, but Mother is also important. And, and the son is good, but daughter and feminine is also important. Uh, and the Holy Spirit is good, but holy matter is also important. So many, many great movements, there are many, many more trinities I can, uh, I can relate. But I want to say that we at this moment in time, in the age of ecology, in the age of holistic thinking, in the age of interrelatedness and interconnectedness. We need a new trinity for our time, which relates to our connection and our relationship with the natural world, which relates to our own inner transformation. Because outer transformation is incomplete without inner transformation. But we don't pay attention to inner transformation and inner qualities of life. So I have put soul in the middle. Soil represents nature and soul represents the inner transformation. How we cultivate the soul qualities of love, of compassion, of kindness, of respect, of generosity, of gift giving. All those qualities are heart qualities, soul qualities, inner transformation. So outer and inner coming together in this trinity. And then I am bringing society as a third trinity because at the moment, one of the big problems in our um, human world is that we are no longer a society. We are just a bunch of individuals or a bunch of separate, separate, separate countries, separate, separate religions. So I want to bring that humanity one. We are one humanity, one whole humanity, one family. And, and the whole, as, I mean, I go very further in that and we say that whole of cosmos is our country. Whole of planet is our home. Nature is our nationality and love is our religion. In that kind of big, magnanimous vision, humanity is one. And we talked about diversity and unity. So one humanity manifesting in many, many forms and many, many um, ways, but unity should be there. So we need to rise above all these divisions and we need to transcend these divisions and say we are one society, one human community. And, and what is good for one country should be good for every country. And what is bad for one country should be bad for every country. So all humanity can live in peace. There's no need for wars, conflicts, poverty, subjugation, exploitation, um, discrimination, um, uh, uh, segregation. All these things are unnecessary. We are one humanity and we need to love everyone. 
So this is why I put the third element as society. So soil represents nature and our interconnectedness and interdependence and, and, and relationship with the, with the natural world out there, with the mountains, the forests, the rivers, the, the oceans, the animals, the birds, the insects, everything, and soil and land, of course. And then our inner uh, transformation, inner joy and celebration, to so say soul qualities. And then I want to bring our human relationship and human community as one interrelated, interdependent, and a wonderful community. So this is a kind of celebration uh, is the fundamental to all these three principles. And I love this, as, I, as you said, in Bhagavad Gita, which is the ancient book of India. It's a dialogue between um, Lord Krishna and, and the warrior Arjuna. And there, Krishna talks about this holistic vision, interconnected vision, that nature, individual, and the human community are all interrelated. And if we do not connect with nature, and we don't connect with our inner world, and we don't connect with each other as humans, then we are lost. So that is the kind of great message of the ancient book of India. And I have translated that, interpreted that in our modern time, in our modern language, I would call this new trinity for our time. Soil, soul, society. Wonderful. Another very interesting thing that you spoke about was your, your mother's uh, teaching to you. Uh, and this is to do with the integration of ecology and economy again. And there's a formula that she spoke to you when, when you were young, you said, uh, which she said, everything should be beautiful, useful, and durable, or bud, B-U-D. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because you kind of point to the fact that this bud formula needs to be applied to our study of economics. Yes, absolutely. You know, at the moment in our modern industrial uh, society and industrial manufacturing, we are losing the sense of beauty. And we are creating an ugly civilization. Everything has to be just utilitarian, useful, functional, but not beautiful, not durable, not uh, anything else. No other qualities are included. Just one quality that we are pursuing that is a functional, is useful, and that's it. So my mother was always thinking that this is not good. In her idea, beauty comes first. And beauty is not only an appearance. Beauty is not just a visual. Beauty does not mean just looking pretty. Beauty means harmony. Beauty means balance. Beauty means proportion. Beauty means something which is inspiring and, and a kind of, a kind of uh, celebratory. So beauty for her was a kind of fundamental philosophy of life. And her mission was to create beauty. That's all you need to do. If you create beauty, all things will be in, uh, in its right place. But beauty is not for her decoration. Beauty, as I said, it's not just visual or, or looking, looking pretty. should also be useful. So if you have a plate to eat your food, plate is useful. But that plate should be handmade and beautiful and attractive and special and unique. So in the same way, um, pots, pans, shoes, clothes, house, um, whatever you have, 
they should be beautiful and at the same time useful. And then the third idea that mother said that even beautiful and useful are not enough because you make something beautiful temporary and throw it away. And throwing away is ugliness. Garbage is ugliness. Waste is ugliness. Pollution is ugliness. And so things, if they are not durable, if they are not regenerative, if they are not sustainable, if they are not lasting, then it's not good enough. So for a good thing, my mother said this bud principle, beautiful, useful, durable. Nothing make which is not beautiful, useful, and durable. Nothing buy which is not beautiful, useful, and durable. Nothing have in your house which is not beautiful, useful, durable. This was the criteria. This was the kind of touchstone for my mother. And she also said that, of course, these are the three things, beautiful, useful, durable outside. But in your motivation should also be taken into account. What is your motivation? If your motivation is power, money, prestige, uh, ego, that's not, uh, that's not going to create beauty. That's not going to create uh, sustainability. So we need to have motivation which goes beyond power, money, profit, um, prestige, um, uh, uh, recognition, um, all these kind of things. Uh, but motivation should be to care for each other, look after each other, serve each other, mutuality, reciprocity, and, and helping. So those were the kind of motivation uh, as a kind of foundation for this trinity. But, but beautiful, useful, durable, this was a touchstone for my mother. And if we follow these three principles, I think we will have a much beautiful and much more joyful uh, life together. At the moment, we are working, working, working too much, too hard, too quick, too fast. We need to slow down. We need to have small is beautiful, slow is beautiful, and we need to find time for something more than just earning money, making a life, producing, consuming, shopping, all that. We need to have time for poetry, for music, for dancing, for our friends, for our family, for ourselves, for our meditation, for reading books, uh, like your, your uh, organization is promoting books. People have no time to read books. They are just quickly on your Twitter or on your Facebook, quickly social media. They have lost time. When my mother used to say, God, when God made time, he or she made plenty of it. That was her principle. There's no shortage of time. But we have made time into shortage because of our kind of industrial mindset, uh, industrial way of life. So having this kind of beautiful, useful, durable principle in your life, you liberate time and you have time for music, poetry, um, uh, philosophy, um, uh, walking in nature, gardening, cooking, so many good things we can do, but nowadays we have no time. So my mother's bird principle uh, is a very practical and very pragmatic principle. And I think we will benefit from this principle greatly if we practice it. Satish, let's say I'm someone who's caught up in the current industrial paradigm way of life that you were just describing. No time, <clears throat> busy, uh, kids, uh, living in a big city, but I'm hearing what you're saying and I really want to start making a change and living at a, at a pace that's more sane in a healthier way, more connected to myself and the earth and the people around me. 
Where do you suggest someone in that situation can begin? Okay. If you are working in New York or Vancouver or Mumbai or Beijing, big, big cities, I would advise you to work maybe three days a week, maximum four days a week, and have Friday, Saturday, Sunday of no work for money, no work in industry, no work in offices, but live your life. You can do gardening, you can be with the family, you can be with friends, you can write poetry, you can sing, you can tell stories, you can do many things which are not related with industrial paradigm, not related with um, uh, money and job paradigm. So if you are in New York, I think you can negotiate with your employer and say, how can I, I will take a little less money, but I will have more time. And I will work instead of five days a week or six days a week, maybe four days a week or three days a week. So if you can reduce your work hours, that is a good start to move towards a more beautiful, useful, and durable lifestyle. That's the one thing I would say. Secondly, wherever you are working, in an office, in a factory, start to think that how can I make this work which I'm doing more beautiful, more useful, and more durable? Whatever I'm producing, can I produce something which is more beautiful, useful, and durable? If I'm teaching, can I bring that kind of teaching in my classroom? Can I bring ecology, environment, uh, sustainability, regenerative culture in my education, in my classroom? If you are a teacher, you transform your educational system. If you are a doctor, you can start to think, how can I bring medicine which is more healing, more holistic, more natural, rather than all these chemicals and all this kind of uh, um, uh, industrial medicine that I'm practicing? So you move more towards nature. You move towards simplicity. I've written another book called Elegant Simplicity. And elegant simplicity is to live beautiful life, but less waste and less industrial, less mechanistic and less kind of chemicals and, and more nature. So if you can have that, even in your workplace, you can start to make some change and transformation. Change starts with your consciousness and your awareness if you start to think differently you will act differently so action and thinking should follow each other so i would say work less hours and whatever work you are doing question it question is this work helping humanity is this work helping nature is this work maintaining and healing humanity and nature or it is by work damaging and destroying humanity or nature. If you can ask those questions, even in Mumbai, Mumbai or Beijing or New York or Vancouver or Montreal, wherever you are, start to ask questions. The moment you start to ask questions, you will find your own answer. Satish Kumar has no answer for everybody. I'm only a kind of uh, a source of maybe inspiration to encourage you to ask your own question and you will find answer in your own heart answer will come true answer will come from your own inner soul and inner spirit and your own imagination so just 
start to ask questions. The moment you start to ask questions, you will find the answer, how I can transform and change my life, even when I am living in London or New York or Paris or Berlin or Moscow. And so this is how I will advise, start to ask that question. Thank you. And I, I have a little follow-up, but first I just want to remind our live audience to please, we're going to get to some of your questions in a moment. So go ahead and type them into the comments on YouTube and we'll address those shortly. It, from what you just said, it seems like a certain amount of courage is required to break out, to, to ask the questions and then to actually take action when we see what we need to do and, and change in our lives. Is that true? There's a certain amount of courage needed? Absolutely. You put your finger on the right pulse because without courage, nothing can happen. And courage is potentially given to every single human being. You don't have to go to a shopping mall to buy courage. You have it. Each and every one of us have courage. The word courage comes from French core. Core means heart. So follow your heart and cultivate your heart. Heart have the courage. So courage and potentially we all have a courage. We all have a heart, but it's not developed. It's not cultivated. So we need to drop the fear. We need to drop the fear of the other, a fear of the future, fear of loss. We don't need to fear. When I was born, I was born without a PhD. I was born without any skills. I was born without any garden or, or kitchen. I was born a naked, vulnerable baby. And the universe put the milk in the breast of my mother because I could not eat or digest anything else. So universe put that milk in the breast of my mother. And so universe will look after you. So no need to fear. Fear is the greatest enemy. And a freedom from fear is the greatest freedom. No other freedom is equivalent to freedom from fear. And the freedom from fear will come when you have courage in your heart. And with the courage in your heart, you cultivate trusting yourself and loving yourself. When I say radical love, radical love starts by loving yourself. And if you love yourself, then you have a courage. You don't love yourself. You don't trust yourself. You hate yourself. Say, I'm not good. I can't do this. I can't do that. I was born bad. I was born poor. I'm Always you condemn yourself and then fear will grow. And I can't do anything. The fear of doing anything. And so courage and fearlessness comes when you cultivate trust in your heart. At the moment, our world generally is suffering from trust deficit disorder. And this de trust deficit, deficit disorder is the greatest disorder, a greatest disease that our world is suffering today. So we need to cultivate trust. And in order to have a trust, you have to have a drop in the fear. And if you drop the fear, your courage will grow. You don't have to go to anybody to get uh, a courage. You have it, cultivate it. And without courage, nothing can happen. World cannot change without courage. Martin Luther King. I had a great honor and pleasure of meeting Martin Luther King. He was the man of courage. That was the greatest strength he had. In 10 years of his activism, he went to jail for 29 times. Can you imagine? 29 times he was arrested and put in prison. And he never had any revenge feeling in his heart. He had never anger for anyone. 
He said, the prisoner, the people who are putting me in prison are my brothers and sisters. The people, police people are my brothers and sisters. The prison guards are my brothers and sisters. The white people are my brothers and sisters. He had no revenge for anybody, but he wanted to stand up with courage to, uh, to, under, to, to re remove the uh, racial discrimination. Like Mahatma Gandhi, he went to jail for 12 years to remove the colonialism and imperialism and the yoke of imperialism and colonialism and industrialism. So these are the inspiration and the great beings who can inspire everyone. Martin Luther King, Mahatma Gandhi, Mother Teresa, Nelson Mandela, and many, many other examples. So follow those examples who have shown the way of the courage. Courage is the key to all our liberation and all our enlightenment and all our happiness and all our joy. Everything depends on courage. You just you just mentioned having the privilege and honor of meeting Martin Luther King Jr. And we have a, a question from someone in our audience named Tara who says, can you tell us a bit about your peace walking? I know that was part of your peace walking when you uh, went to the U.S. Yes, you can. Case, you so. can. That's a good question because that peace walking required courage and fearlessness and a trust because I was a young man of 26 and I read that a great, another great fearless man, a courageous man in England called Bertrand Russell, a Nobel Prize winning philosopher and scientist and mathematician, a Lord Bertrand Russell, went to prison, went to jail like Martin Luther King for peace in the world. And so when he was arrested and put in jail, I read that news. He was 90 years old and I was 26 years old. And I said to my friend who was with me at that time in a coffee house, I said, look, my friend, here's a man of 90 going to jail for peace in the world. What are you and I doing here, sitting in this coffee house, drinking coffee? Let's do something. So that was the inspiration. And my friend and I then and there on that day in that coffee house, decided that we will walk to four nuclear capitalists of the world, Moscow, Paris, London, and Washington, D.C., to protest against the nuclear bombs and join the international peace movement led by Bertrand Russell. And we decided that we'll go without any money because wars begin in fear, fear of the other. Peace begins in trust, trusting the other. So if we want to talk about peace, demonstrate about peace, then we have to be peace. We have to practice peace. How do we show that we are peace and we practice peace? By trusting everybody. So we went without any money, not a single cent or a single dollar or a single penny for two and a half years through 15 countries Muslim countries, Christian countries, communist countries, capitalist countries, rich countries, poor countries, every kind of 15 countries. 8,000 miles we walked over two and a half years from India to America and also in Japan, from Tokyo to Hiroshima. We walked to make a pilgrimage um, uh, to Hiroshima, the first city which was victim of the H-bomb. So that was our journey. So. Following the idea of courage and trust 
that in my walk was a kind of learning experience for me to trust the world, trust the strangers. I was looked after by the strangers, the hospitality of the strangers. Ordinary people who I met first time and last time, I will never see them again. And yet they gave me food, they gave me clothes, they gave me shoes, they gave me shelter. And I talked in universities and schools and churches and mosques. And I went to Kremlin and I gave peace tea to the leaders of the Kremlin. And I went to the White House and I was receiving the White House and I gave the packet of peace tea to the White House. So, so my journey of two and a half years for peace was a kind of a courage and trust in practice. Wonderful, incredible, incredible story, really is. Uh, you've had many inspirations in your life, I know. And there's a question here from Dawn who says, can you talk about the inspiration or influence? I, I hope I'm saying the last name right, of E.F. Schumacher. On yes. Your work. Yes, E.F. Schumacher, uh, correctly you pronounced, was an economist. And he wrote a wonderful book called Small is Beautiful. If you have not read this book, I can highly recommend to you. It's about the most wisdomful of wisdom book. And, and E.F. Schumacher went to Burma, what is now Myanmar. And there he learned about the principles of Buddhist economics. So one of the chapter in the book is Buddhist economics. And he was a great champion of ecological farming ecological, um, as he was a president of the Soil Association in England, in, in Great Britain. And, and he promoted an ecological worldview. He said in the, in the 60s and 70s that the age of oil and the age of coal is coming to an end. We have to live by renewable resources uh, like the sun and the, the wind and the water and the rain. And so he was my good friend. And he wrote in every issue of Resurgence magazine, which I was the editor in your introduction, you mentioned. And so when he passed away, I thought we should do something as a legacy and, and, a, and a memory of this great economist and a great thinker and a great ecologist and a great promoter of um, organic and, and a sustainable and regenerative farming and regenerative agriculture as the president of the Soil Association. So in his name, I established Schumacher College in Devon in England. And so Schumacher's influence on the ecological movement is very strong because Schumacher brings together the spiritual and ecological and economic and social all together. In a way, Soil Soul Society, although he did not use those three words, I coined them, but in his work, he was relating to nature. He was relating to spiritual uh, uh, and, and, and inner, inner transformational values. And he was relating to social and human values. So he was a champion and, and a prophet and, and a kind of uh, a precursor of many, many great ideas of today. We have just a comment here from Christina that I wanted to share from you who says, you bring warmth to all you spe speak, think and do. Satish, thank you. I first heard you speak at U of Rajasthan, U Rajasthan in Jaipur, India in 1997 while on a semester abroad. Your courage has stayed with me now 27 years. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for your such kind 
and beautiful words. Thank you. I appreciate them. I'm grateful. Now, we're, we're coming close to the end of our time, so I just want to remind our audience we've been speaking to the, the wonderful Satish Kumar uh, about many things, but especially his new book, Radical Love, uh, From Separation to Connection with Earth, Each Other, and Ourselves. And a big thanks to our live audience, as always, for being here. Satish, maybe before we go, there's a question I wanted to ask you. Uh, there's a chapter towards the end of the book, or yeah, towards the end of the book on action. And you share a letter from an activist friend who is feeling despondent and frustrated at all of his years of work and he wasn't getting the results he wanted. This kind of sense of futility around, you know, governments and corporations and that kind of thing. You've been doing this for so long now and you must have had ups and downs. I'm just wondering if you can share some words of wisdom and inspiration for our audience. Anyone out there who might experiencing this kind of despondency or frustration with trying to make progress in this world yes thank you thank you um yes um i have been through ups and downs of course i always welcome problems but problems make us more resilient we cannot have a life without problems so i welcome problems i made many mistakes and mistakes are good no one can learn without making mistakes. So I do not worry about making mistakes. And if somebody makes mistakes, I don't complain. I say, that's natural. You made a mistake, that's no problem. And you learn from your mistake and do better next time. So that is my attitude. So I act without thinking that problem is a problem. I act because I say problem is an opportunity to act. If there was no colonialism, and no imperialism, there'll be no need for Mahatma Gandhi. If there's no racism, there'll be no need for Martin Luther King. So all these great human beings come because there are some problems in society. So we have problems of ecology and environmental destruction, and, and we have problems of climate change and global warming and biodiversity diminishing and social injustice and all these problems. So I say these problems are there. I did not create them. Uh, hopefully, uh, but I can do something to solve them. And so I act, but I act without the desires to achieve the results because results are not in my hands. Results and outcome are not in my control. Only action is in my control. Out of love, I protest. Out of love, I protect what is good in the world. And out of love, I build new alternative things like Schumacher College or, um, uh, or organic uh, agriculture, or organic gardening or writing books. So I act out of love and, and, and without fear and without expectations that I will achieve the results. As I said, without desiring the fruit of your action, act. Because action is its own reward. If you act, you have done your service to humanity. And then everybody joined together. No one person can change the world. Mahatma Gandhi was joined by millions of people to bring independence to India. Martin Luther King was brought millions of people together to uh, change the racial discrimination. All the peace movement was brought together by Burton Russell, by millions of people joining together. Our ecology, environmental movement, also lots of people. So no one person can do it. It's a co-creation. So working together, joining together, all great rivers 
are made of many, many small, small tributaries, small, small streams. They come together, hundreds of them. Then it becomes a great river of Hudson or great river of Thames or great river of Ganges. So my action is that I become a tributary. I become a stream, this great river of transformation. That's all I can be. And, and, and I'm just part of it. So without expectation of results, without expectation of any outcome, I just act and act and act with active hope. I have a great hope in my heart. I'm an optimist. If you are a pessimist, you cannot be an activist. You might become a journalist, but not an activist. To be an activist, you have to have optimism, optimist. And that's active hope. Hope is not just a wishful thinking that all will be well and nothing I have to do. No, all will be well and I will contribute my uh, action and best of my ability, I will act and make some difference. So I joined the movement, co-creation, working together with other people and, that, and, and I'm happy. I celebrate my work. I have no burnout. I have no frustration. I have no disappointment because I'm not expecting anything. If you expect something, results, outcome, achievement, and you don't get it, you are disappointed. You become anxious, you become angry, you become um, upset. But if you have no expectations, you have no disappointment. So I act because action itself is my own reward. And I contribute my, like a tributary in the great river of transformation. That's all I can do. And that's what I want all activists to do what they can out of love, love of humanity, love of earth, love of nature, love of mountains and forests and rivers and animals and humans and yourself. If you act out of love, you have no frustration, no disappointment and no, uh, no um, uh, disagreement with anybody because you are doing your best. And then universe will give you gift of some results. And then you are grateful. Thank you, whatever we achieve. Martin Luther King achieved something and uh, diminishing racism. Um, Mahatma Gandhi achieved something, um, independence of India. Uh, Nelson Mandela achieved something uh, like uh, end of apartheid in New South Africa. But these are all great gifts of the universe and we are grateful to receive them. But we are not knowing when those results will come or will not come. And Mahatma Gandhi said, I might die before India is independent. And Martin Luther King died before uh, Obama became president and a black man in the White House and, and so on and so on. So do not go or hanker for the results. Results are a gift from the universe. Just you act out of your love and as a service to the world. Satish Kumar, uh, it is really an honor to have had you with us today. And, and thank you so much for your, your huge life of service and wonderful work and, and for taking the time to speak with us today. It had been my pleasure to speak with you and thank you for your wonderful questions. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. 
please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com.